From FreeLakes1.com, this is Inside the FLX. I'm Josh Durso, and it has been a little more than a week since New York State adopted a $175.5 billion budget for fiscal 2020. The Empire Center says it's equivalent to $14.6 billion of spending per month. It's the kind of spending that raises a lot of questions, like... How will that spending benefit upstate New York? And since those funds are raised through tax collection, what kind of impact will that have? My guest this hour is Michael Cracker, Executive Director of Unshackle Upstate, the advocacy coalition made up of business and trade organizations from across upstate New York. Michael, thanks for being here. Thanks, Josh. Good to be here. So first things first, tell us a little bit about uh, Unshackle Upstate and what the, the kind of work you guys do. Uh, sort of year-round. Yeah, sure. Uh, Unshackle Upstate is, a, as you mentioned, a, a coalition of upstate chambers of commerce and statewide trade groups uh, representing the interests of employers and taxpayers uh, based in upstate New York. So I spent a lot of time around upstate and in the state capital trying to elevate the issues that matter to upstate New Yorkers and make sure that we have a voice in a state capital that's largely dominated uh, by New York City interests. I think we all appreciate in New York State that upstate-downstate divide. And uh, my efforts every day are to advocate for policies that will make upstate New York a better place to live and an easier place to do business. Something you know is uh, not very easy today. It's tough, for sure. Um, So what are the – before we get into kind of some of the things that could help upstate get better, and I want to focus on that as we get through Mm -hmm. this uh, 30, 40-minute conversation, uh, what are the real-life implications of – $175 $175 billion spending plan for New York State from, from your perspective? Sure. Well, I think it starts with, you know, happy spring. No no season in, in New York starts without legislators being up at 3, 4, 5 in the morning, uh, passing a state budget, $175.5 billion of uh, state spending passed in the, in the late hours or, or early hours of April 1st. Uh, that is a tradition in New York unlike any other. But, you know, there there are some positives in the state budget, certainly for upstate New York taxpayers. The uh, passage of a permanent 2% property tax cap, the governor had made that a significant priority. He had advanced that back in 2012, something we had long been calling for as an organization, and it had been extended several times. This budget actually makes that permanent without any provisions attached to it that water it down. And, and while the, the tax cap does get some criticism because it doesn't actually reduce spending, it has saved taxpayers $25 billion since 2012. That's real money. And now I think efforts need to focus on the mandate relief. You know, you hear uh, folks talk that when this was passed, the cap was part one and part two was mandate relief. Well, we've never gotten part two. So now I think our attention really needs to, to turn to that so we can actually start to reduce property taxes. Uh, for New Yorkers. But that was a big win. But there were other things in the budget that were they were not good. There was I, billions of dollars in new revenue actions, what Albany likes to call taxes, uh, whether it was the repeal of the energy service company sales tax exemption, which means businesses, and in, in particularly in upstate, are going to be paying more in their utility bills, uh, DOT right-of-way fee that's going to increase taxes on broadband deployment, you know, little things like that that are, you know, maybe hard for the general public to, to be paying attention to, but are going to have a pretty significant impact on their lives. Now, you mentioned the property tax cap, and I, I want to talk about that because when you talk to elected officials, especially in rural communities, um, like you said, it's kind of a mixed bag. Some are in favor of it. Others are saying, yeah, but if mandates aren't, aren't cut back, then it's effectively a wash for us. Um as far as growth goes, or as far as being able for these smaller communities to be able to do a little more uh, with a little less, 
how much mandate relief is really necessary to make that that property tax cap um, feel like a real win? Because I, it may not feel like that right now, right? Yeah, I, I think there's there's a lot of mandate relief. I'm sure that can be that can be achieved. Albany loves to pass unfunded mandates onto municipalities. And, and it's things you wouldn't necessarily expect, even with uh, the op- increasing of your voting hours. Now, for primary states, or every county is going to have to be open from 6 a.m. to 9 p.m. Previously, counties could be open at noon to 9. Well, there's a cost associated with that, and, and Albany mandates that they do this, but they don't necessarily provide the funding necessary for, unis- for municipalities to be able to make up that cash gap. Uh, you've heard a lot of talk of, of late about the state absorbing uh, the full cost of Medicaid. And, and frankly, if that were to happen, a lot of municipalities would be able to almost virtually abolish their property taxes. So there's a ton that can be done, but I think now that the tax cap is, is permanent, I think it's un- incumbent upon Albany to really take this seriously and find ways to start unburdening uh, local municipalities of some of the mandates that they've pushed on them so that we could actually start to reduce property taxes, which would make a huge difference. We have some of the highest property taxes as a percentage of home value here in upstate New York. Broome County, I think, actually leads the nation in that space, which isn't really a distinction anybody wants, but they have it. So we ha- it's a problem we have to address because it's an impediment for families that live here, and it's you know a deterrent for people wanting to relocate here. What are the, I'm sure you talk to a lot of folks, um, who own businesses, who, who work in these small businesses and, and sort of uh, own these properties that are highly taxed. Well, what are some of the things that you hear um, from those folks in terms of what they want you to fight for or what changes they'd like to see that sure. might help, help them out a little? I, I think, you know, we when we think about what's a challenge to businesses, particularly small businesses, our first instinct is to look at the tax structure. And that's a problem, no question. We should be looking for ways to reduce our tax burden. But the other side of it is the regulatory burden. We have a very, very complicated regulatory burden, and it's little things that Albany thinks don't make a big difference, but when you stack them all on top of each other, for a small business in particular, they're things that are very difficult to comply with. You know, something as innocent as sexual harassment training mandates. Well, there's a cost associated with that, and, you know, there's a burden and there's a penalty. So, you know, employers, when you add that on top of everything, this new uh, state budget requires three hours of PTO, paid time off, for employees to go vote on election day, whether they need it or not. You know, they may have a shift that allows them to go vote, but they can take it without having to prove. And that's a small thing, but there is a cost associated with that. So Albany, I think, very often thinks that the impacts of their regulatory burden are are minor, but when you stack them all up, it really adds up for a small business in particular who doesn't necessarily have the resources or the staff or anything like that to comply. So a, a lot of times it's something that feels innocent, but has a real impact. And curious if you agree with this, uh, Assembly Minority Leader Brian Kolb was in, uh, was in last week, and he essentially said there's a lack of planning when it, when it comes to the current administration uh, in terms of these regulations, such as minimum wage, things like that, not thinking what the impact's going to be, not just this year or next year, but four, five, six, seven, eight years from now. Yeah, I certainly think that sometimes, well, very often, Albany fails to comprehend the unintended consequences of their actions, and something may feel good and, and sound, you know, like it is going to be a, a benefit. It looks good on paper and makes for a good press release, 
But then there's a, you know, what happens two, three, four, ten years down the road. Uh, you know, we may get into it in, in more detail, but right now Albany is considering this Farm Fair Labor Act, which would mandate overtime and some other employee benefits on, on your agriculture industry. And, you know, if you're applying a 40-hour work week mandate on a farm when our growing season is, you know, maybe four months of the year, you've got to cram a whole year's worth of business into a few months. You, you know, you're not going to be able to work nine to five. You've got to be up dusk till dawn. I mean, that's sort of the, you know, the uh, opinion everybody has of agriculture. It's really hard work. You're working long hours, but you've got a short season here in New York. Uh, so, you know, here Albany is, particularly, it is really coming out of New York City, which I think is ironic that New York City would be trying to mandate uh, ag the agriculture industry because I'm not aware of any, you know, farms of any significance in Manhattan. Uh, but, uh, you know, there's a, there's a significant unintended consequence, and, and we're already losing a lot of farms here in New York. 2,100 since 2012 have closed. So if we're going to go ahead and add this mandate on top of it, how many more are going to close? Mm -hmm. And here's something, I think, where people feel like they're making a decision that's in the best interest of New York, and at the end of the day, uh, it'll have the opposite effect. And a lot of those farms, uh, as we've seen in some of the numbers, are, are family-owned mm -hmm. farms. They're the small operations, not the large ones. Um, is that one of the concerns when you start to see an eroding of sort of um, family-owned businesses, small businesses in upstate New York? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as I mentioned, on these regulatory burdens, a lot of times a, a large, larger business might be able to it. Make, make it work. You know, if you've got a a mandate on employers, your Home Depots of the world might be able to survive, but your local hardware store might say, this is making it too expensive for me to continue to operate. And, and that's not to say that these challenges don't also negatively impact your larger businesses, but it's really the family-owned businesses, the smaller operations that are also the lifeblood of the upstate New York economy, you know, whether it's manufacturing or agriculture or your shops up and down Main Street, that's who are the employers in upstate New York. We don't have that many large employers, you know, you don't have your Buffalo Bethlehem Steels or, you know, your Kodaks in Rochester. Those aren't operating any longer. It's really our economy now is diverse. It's it's mostly small or micro-sized businesses. And those are the businesses that really feel the pinch when Albany comes uh, knocking to the door for their tax revenues and adding uh, additional uh, b regulatory burden. Curious, what did you make of, of the, the debate around prevailing wage? Uh, that seemed to really heat up over the last 30 days or so before budget was signed. Yeah, yeah, that was uh, that was one where a lot of us were hitting the refresh page trying to find out if it was going to be in or was going to be out. Uh, and I, I believe that this is an existential issue for upstate economic development. For those who aren't familiar with the issue, a prevailing wage mandate, right now we have a prevailing wage on public works. And public works are defined, you know, really as, as public infrastructure projects, your schools, your roads, your hospitals, your public hospitals, jails, things like that are public works projects. And as such, they're required to pay a prevailing wage, which is essentially a, a negotiated union wage and union benefits. Uh, what they're, some in Albany are attempting to do is to expand the definition of public works to include, require prevailing wage on projects who receive even a single dollar of public subsidy. So, you know, the, the, the sad reality is in New York, not much economic development takes place, particularly upstate, without some form of public inducement. And that's, mm -hmm. you know, your IDA or economic development uh, loans, that's uh, SBA grants, historic tax credits, brownfield remediation, you know, pro programs like that that are designed to say, 
listen, it's pretty expensive to do business in New York. We have some of the highest construction costs in the country. So the public's going to incentivize a project to help generate economic development. Well, now if you're requiring those those businesses to pay, those developers to pay significantly higher uh wages and, and, and benefits, as many as might increase the project costs as much as 35%, they might not be as attractive for a developer to pursue. You know, I, I heard somebody say the private sector is smart. They're not going to give $6 to get $2 back. That's a pretty uh, poor business model. Mm-hmm. So they may just say, you know what, we can build elsewhere. We don't need to build in New York. And unfortunately, we're already lagging behind New York City here with economic development. There's explosive growth down in the five boroughs, not so much you know, here in Seneca Falls or other places. So if we're putting wet blankets on our economic development, we're going to see uh, less construction and less jobs, period. And, and doesn't that also kind of breed a scenario where you could just see as a result um, higher higher figures going out in terms of public inducement, just the, the tax breaks, et cetera, growing to compensate? Well, there, there, there was sort of some talk about, well, what about if we increase the public inducement to offset the wages? Well, now all you're really doing is you're asking the taxpayers to subsidize, you know, union wages further, and I don't think that's a fair thing to ask. You know, some of these public inducements already get a fair share of criticism. If now you're just increasing them and making the taxpayers pay that burden uh, so that you can basically pay a union wage, and and most of those times you're going to end up with union labor, that's a problem. You also create barriers for entry when you do this to smaller mom-and-pop operations. You know, your well-financed groups can probably – you know, manage to pay that, that increased wage, a smaller, a smaller operation might say, this project's too expensive for me to bid on. I'm going to have to take a pass. I can't, I can't afford to pay those wages, and I'm going to leave it to the bigger guys. So again, uh, the, the smaller size businesses lose out, and ultimately, in some shape or form, the taxpayers are going to be on the hook for it, and uh, it's going to be a real shame. And it seems interesting because a lot of times when we get into these types of discussions or, or these types of policies you're ended up talking about moving money from one column and putting it in another column or moving spending from one column and just moving it to another. Um, and, and the real benefit seems to be uh, the, the press side of it for the, the administration, the Albany in general, those uh, political groups who feel favorably about these different pieces of legislation. What is that element? Like, why aren't we seeing more sizable real change if these policies are so great? Yeah, I mean, th- that's really it. I, I sometimes question the, the, the logic behind pushing this proposal. You know, some of the labor unions will say, well, we're going to be paying people more on these jobs. Well, my, my assertion is you're not, you know, what's a 30% increase on zero construction? Zero. Uh, if the projects aren't happening, nobody's getting paid, uh, whether you're w- willing to pay them more or not. And I do also look at it from... The governor's perspective, I think everybody knows the governor likes to cut ribbons and announce big projects. Well, if you're making these projects 25, 30% more expensive, there's going to be significantly less of them. So I don't know, you know, politicians like to go around and, and pull out the big scissors and cut a ribbon on a project or put the shovel in the ground. If there's no developers who want to pursue these projects, you're not going to see it. So I, I don't really understand the, the desire for this. We have a, a definition of, of public works, and it's been something that's existed in this state for a long time. Applying it to private development, I think, is, is irresponsible and will ultimately lead to less construction in upstate New York. New York City, you know, they, they've got the critical mass of development that they might be able to do it. We just simply don't have that kind of development here and, and that demand to build. If you're going to put another roadblock in front of it, you're going to halt development. And minimum wage, uh, obviously, starting to get to its apex. 
um, here in the Finger Lakes and in upstate New York. Um, walk us through what the, the real-life implications of that have been over the last two, three years as the, the updates to minimum wage have occurred. Yeah, I think backing up, it was an example of New York State recognizing that we have different economies in downstate and upstate. And when ultimately there was a compromise on minimum wage, it was stated that New York City will rise at a faster rate than upstate New York, and that upstate will go to, I think the final number is 1250 next year. Uh, and then the Department of Labor will somehow calculate what further increases are going to be, and that's going to be a whole other can of worms when we get there. But I think you are starting to see the pinch. You're starting to see you know, again, particularly some of your smaller businesses that are saying, now that this is increasing year after year, we're starting to feel the pressure and we're starting to get to that point where, you know, either we're reducing the amount of employees we have or looking for ways to reduce our labor costs. I think I, I saw a statistic that, that New York City had the, the, the slowest growth in the restaurant industry that it's had in years. And, and a lot of the folks are attributing that to the increases in minimum wage. And then, you know, it's not an uncommon sight for you to go into a restaurant and find a kiosk instead of an employee greeting you. Uh, that is a way that businesses who, you know, at the end of the day are, are in it to, to make a profit are saying, how do I cut my costs? And as you increase the labor costs, that's going to become a much more attractive column to seek to make reductions. Uh, and I think you're going to continue to see it as that, as that cost goes up. So one of the things that always gets discussed and talked about, uh, infrastructure, infrastructure spending, how do we sort of fix the issues in upstate, rural upstate? Um, from your point of view, what, what are some of the things that Albany could do to sort of help this, uh, easing some of the mandates maybe, but in general, what kind of plan does Albany need to put together to make this work? Well, I, I do think there needs to be an acknowledgement, certainly, that upstate infrastructure needs are as important as downstate. In this budget process, you heard a lot about the MTA, and no doubt the MTA has their problems. I, I, I'm not asking for them not to focus on trying to make the you know, New York City subway system, which has you know, millions of travelers or whatever the number is. It's very, very, very popular. But that's, that shouldn't be come at the expense of our upstate infrastructure needs, particularly in rural communities. We all know it. Some of our roads and bridges are completely uh, uh defunct and, and sometimes you've got bridges that are that are in the ground and, and are closed uh, and that's just on your, your roads and bridges you know you've also got sewer infrastructure needs you've got you know upstate transit infrastructure needs and I don't think that Albany this year put much of an emphasis on that and I think going forward that's going to be something we're looking at very intently uh, we're in the process now kind of working through uh, a deep dive on some of the numbers to see how you know how much we lost out on. You've heard some of the uh, some of the Republicans, particularly upstate, sort of lament the, the elimination of uh, you know extreme weatherization dollars and reduction mm -hmm. in chips funding, and that's a concern. If we get to a point where you know Albany is no longer paying attention to to upstate infrastructure, that's going to be very telling. During this this change in the Senate majority, we were told, "Oh, you've got nothing to worry about. We're going to make sure we're doing the same to focus on upstate New York." You know, the the Senate Republicans had long lamented a, a change in in uh, party would mean a change in focus. Part of my job is to make sure that we're holding them accountable to that commitment to to continuing to fight for upstate New York. And I think we'll sort of see where this goes. But no doubt, this budget put a much greater emphasis on the MTA, and I have a concern if that continues to. to be the trend going forward because we have we have real needs and there are things we could do to reduce the cost you know reforming the New York State scaffold law is something that we could do that would make our infrastructure dollars go a lot further certainly 
uh, prevailing wage would have an impact on that. So uh, there's certainly concerns, but no doubt Albany needs to do more uh, to focus on our roads and bridges and sewer infrastructure and, and other things like that. It's interesting because when we talk to some uh, elected officials in here, they, on both sides of the aisle, uh, sometimes there's an admission and a little bit of a resignation, I guess, to the fact that it doesn't really feel like Albany cares that much about those infrastructure needs uh, here in the Finger Lakes or in these rural communities. And to that end, you mentioned the property tax cap earlier. Sometimes it even comes up where uh, they will say we may have to exceed the tax cap at some point and, mm -hmm. and do this ourselves. Uh, at what point do you think these communities get to that point where they, they say Albany just isn't going to do it for us. We're going to have to do it ourselves. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that's kind of been a mentality. You know, I think Siena, the Siena poll that came out recently kind of indicated that a lot of a lot of folks in upstate New York don't feel that Albany's got their interests at heart, and I think municipalities sort of feel that too. And I think it's it's incumbent upon everybody to, to, to say that loudly and speak up and try to, you know, put pressure on Albany to address these issues. Certainly, uh, sort of taking you know uh, charge and moving forward on their own is an option, and there is a mechanism for them to override the cap. And I think when that happens, Albany's got to take notice. But you know, it's a challenge. We got to make sure that we're holding our elected officials responsible at you know at all levels, whether it's the governor or the legislature as a whole. Certainly, I know you know your local legislator may be championing for you, but if they're not in the room where you know the the pie is getting divided, that you know may not be all that you know impactful but certainly they can still raise the issue and work with their colleagues and that's part of our role too is to make sure that we're you know holding people accountable when they're not delivering for upstate new york what are you hearing we, we talked a little bit about infrastructure what are you hearing in terms of broadband expansion um, that seems to be when we talk to the local leaders that's the the area that they're really starting to focus on now not just roads bridges and water and sewer but making sure that broadband access is legitimate yeah, yeah the board. this is it's 2019 this is as important as as any other part of infrastructure uh, and and the state has sort of you know declared victory on this but I think in rural rural America rural upstate New York we know that that's not the case you know you've heard they said they've you know, they've basically covered 99% of the state or something like that. But you go into a lot of these rural communities and they don't have access to, to high-speed broadband. And, and, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, your kids going to school and having to come home and do projects or just basically being a, you know, a New Yorker in 2019 where everything revolves around, you know, the Internet, uh, that's a significant disadvantage, disadvantage for people who don't have access. Uh, I think the state's doing some things to address that. I know that there have been some some challenges with companies like Spectrum, and, and there's the rollout's not been perfect. But I also think things like this DOT broadband fee are going to slow the ability to roll that out, and it's going to decrease the private sector's incentive to want to pursue this. But no question, having access to the latest you know 21st century broadband technology is critical for us to be attractive places for existing residents and you know a desirable place for new residents to want to locate so it all fits in together but no doubt the state's going to do more and obviously uh, plastic bags and perhaps styrofoam is next it seems to be this sort of trend mm -hmm. moving forward um, your feelings and what you've sort of seen how this has been uh, played out over the last two months, which for a lot of people feels rushed. It feels quick. Yeah, I, I completely agree that it, that it's you know a, a significant change. I thought that there was maybe some some opportunity for them to phase in some of these changes over a, a longer stream 
and allow the, some of these businesses to do sort of an education campaign with their customers. No doubt that you know the, the ban on plastic bags, I think, is going to be a big change for people. And it's also going to be a, a little bit of a burden on some employers, uh, you know, whether it's your small convenience stores or things like that. Paper is a, is a more expensive product. So now they have to purchase that or have their customers utilize, uh, you know, their own bag. And, and there's going to be a, also, I think, maybe a little bit of a burden dealing with the fact that, you know, the, the stores, the clerks are going to be the ones that are sort of bearing the brunt of this. No one's going to, you know, when, they, when somebody comes in to buy their groceries and they're kind of angry that they can't get a plastic bag, they're not going to take it out on their legislator. They're going to take it out on the, you know, poor kid at the, at the Wegmans line, and yeah. uh, he's going he's gonna <laughs> to hear from it. But, uh, you know, th- there's also, I think, just this movement in Albany to, to ban products without fully taking into account the science behind it. You know, you mentioned the, the styrofoam or polystyrene. First of all, there's real jobs here in the Finger Lakes that make these products. Yeah. I was in Albany last week with uh, the, the plastics industry talking about this issue, and you've got two companies uh, in, in the Canandaigua area, Impactive and uh, what used to be Commodore Plastics. I'm not sure of the name now, but they're real jobs. I mean, I think yeah. Pactive's got 700 employees. In, in uh, Bloomfield, there's, I think, 180 employees that are making this product. And, and I think for Ontario County, those are big employers. I think Pactive's the second largest private employer in the county. Uh, if you ban these products, a lot of those people are going to be struggling for work. And to what end are you banning them? Is the alternative actually any better? I would make the case it is not. I think this is something that, you know, Albany needs to really slow down on and look at the science and understand what not only the impact is on, on the employees that are making these products here in New York, but what actual impact is this going to have on pollution and on, you know, our landfills and are these products that they're replacing it with any safer? Because they're certainly more expensive. So, uh, I think, again, these, this gets back to the unintended consequences and is Albany really thinking all these things through? And when you talk to a lot of, uh, when we talk to a lot of employers, small and big, up here in the Finger Lakes, uh, workforce development seems to be the big uh, concern. Not having that that prospective employee pool to pull from um, is that something that you hear across upstate New York? Absolutely, absolutely. I think that is one of the, you know, one of the unsung issues that that is a challenge to employers is is workforce and finding that next generation of workers in a you know, with a particular skill. I think if you go to you know any machine shop and a construction site. Really, you know, anything in the manufacturing space in particular, and you walk the floor, you're going to see a lot of gray hair. And uh, that's no, that's no uh, criticism to those folks, but as they near retirement age, you're not seeing the, you know, the backflow of, of, you know, young talent coming in and, and having the skills necessary to do the jobs that are required. So I think that's something that, that Albany uh, should use as an opportunity to work with the business community. I think it's a, it's a mutually beneficial exercise. You've got, you know, the folk. People need good-paying jobs. These jobs are available, and they're looking for talent. But the state should step in and help provide, you know, some support for these people to get the skills that are necessary to then enter the workforce. It keeps them off of, uh, you know, some of the public assistance programs and provides them, you know, good oppor- good employment opportunities. And it gives, you know, our existing employers that next generation of talent that they so desperately desire. It's one of the biggest uh, concerns I think of of the business community is, uh, you know, making sure you've got talent to f- replace that, that retiring generation. So one of, the, one of the questions that popped up on social media when we were uh, previewing this uh, conversation was 
Uh, how long before New York State moves toward or moves into a single-payer health care system? Um, a lot of folks, it seems like when you talk to a lot of folks, it feels imminent. It feels like it is something that's going to happen eventually if uh, the political tides don't change. Yeah, I, I, I certainly have my concerns about that. I think what I've tried to do is talk about there's two differences. There's achieving universal coverage, which I think is a goal that everybody supports and one that I think is worthwhile to pursue, and single-payer. And single-payer means everybody is covered under a state-sponsored Healthcare plan, and you're, you're you basically are outlining private insurance and mandating that everybody go into essentially a state managed Medicaid program. And I think that's the difference that I think people don't appreciate when they think single payer. They just think you know, sure, everybody should have access to insurance, and I would agree with that. But a, a, a state managed, you know, two hundred billion dollar healthcare plan that outlaws private insurance and closes all the existing insurance companies, which is, you know, maybe 50,000 jobs that are gone overnight, uh, is, is something that I think should be concerning for people. There are, you know, in the governor's initial budget proposal, he had wanted to create this universal coverage commission that would look at ways that the private sector and the public sector can work together to provide uh, universal coverage. And I, we were very supportive of that. I think that's something that should be pursued. I don't think the state should pursue a single-payer health care system. It's failed in most places that you've tried to do it at the state level. And I know there's also talk about perhaps the federal government at some point pursuing that. I don't think anybody would expect that to happen under the current administration, but it may be something that gets looked at sometime down the road. But I just think at this point, you're going to double the size of the state budget. You're going to massively raise taxes on, on everybody across the board, and you're going to put a lot of people out of work to achieve a solution to a problem that's really affecting about 5% of the state's population. That's the population percentage of current un, or uninsured individuals. Mm -hmm. And I think that there are more effective, more affordable ways to address closing that coverage gap than a single-payer health care system. So over the next year, uh, as you guys look forward and start to work through uh, your plan for 2019 and the beginning of 2020, getting into that budget process, um, what are some of the things that you focus on heading into the summer? Yeah, I think, you know, throughout the next couple of weeks, there's no question it's going to be playing a lot of defense. I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of policy that's on the table before the end of June when the legislature breaks for session that we have concerns about. Uh, you know, the, the proposals about the Com Climate Community Protection Act or the Green New Deal, uh, elimination of the tip wage credit, uh, expansion of rent regulations in upstate New York. There's a lot of things that we're going to be working to sort of pump the brakes on. But I think going forward, you know, we're going to try to spend, you know, the summer months reaching out to uh, legislators, particularly in upstate New York, to try to find some common ground that we can achieve some victories that will make upstate New York a better place to do business. And I think there are issues that we would agree on uh, that we want to try to find opportunities to work with, you know, m members of the Democratic Party to say, you know, you guys are in the majority. Let's try to find issue, ways that we can work together to make New York State a better place to do business. There's a, a manufacturing bill that was actually carried for a number of years by uh, Senator Tom O'Mara uh, that is now being carried by uh, Senator Anna Kaplan that would bring manufacturing, uh, the manufacturing tax rates down to zero for all manufacturers. Right now, some of the larger manufacturers are paying a 0% tax rate. This would expand it to your smaller manufacturers, and that would make, I think, New York State a very attractive place for your small manufacturers to do business. And 
you know, that's something that we can do that has, you know, minimal impact on state revenue, but will have a tremendous impact on uh, the business climate here in New York for manufacturers. So trying to f- identify things like that that ultimately make upstate New York a more affordable place to live and do business uh, is something that we're going to be looking to find partnerships on going forward. And to that end, when, when we sort of see the reports come out, every single, it feels like every couple of months uh, that upstate New York is losing population and maybe upstate should, should break away from downstate. All of these really sort of uh, big trends and they turn into these really big discussions. Um, when you guys hear them, do you sort of back that down a little bit and say there is a reasonable option on the table here if we just work together? Yeah, I, I, I always say I share the frustration that generates those bills to separate uh, New York into whether three autonomous regions or into two states or anything like that. There are a couple different proposals out there. I understand the frustration that, that creates that mentality. Uh, I think that you know our role at Unshackle Upstate is to elevate the issues that matter to upstate New York and try to force them into the discussion under the current structure. I also think there are probably some significant hurdles to achieving uh, those those. Uh, those proposals, you know, actually having those become reality. There's not only a a challenge at getting them through the state level, but then the federal government also has to weigh in on that. And I don't know that that's likely to happen. So I think our time is better spent trying to advance issues that we feel will make upstate New York a better place uh, to live and do business and working under the existing structure and really just trying to find that common ground to say, listen, we have a, we, we got to start with acknowledging we have a problem here. Mm-hmm. Uh, our population is, is shrinking significantly. We, there are some pockets of success, but holistically, there's no question we have a problem. What can we do in Albany to address those problems? All right, Michael, thanks for coming in. Appreciate Josh, it. Josh, good to be with you.